This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It was supposed to be just another ordinary, boring summer job. I needed a way to save money for the upcoming school year, so my geology professor offered to put me in touch with a local caving group. From June to August, the group hosted camps for children ages 12 to 14. Over the course of each four-day, three-night session, campers would hike along limestone rivers, learn about underground ecology, receive guided tours of three different caves, and even spend the night in one. Along the way, of course, they would be treated to the usual cringy team-building activities, cold bug-infested showers, and barely edible food familiar to summer camp attendees everywhere. My task, on paper, was a simple one. I was to guide the campers through the caves in groups of about 20 and keep an eye on them while they stayed overnight. We worked in pairs, with one guide at the front of the group and another at the rear, to make sure that no one got lost. We carried helmets, three sources of light, walkie-talkies, first aid kits, and extra rope, even though the caves that we worked with were well-mapped and well-trafficked. No one expected anything to go wrong. Well, almost no one. Scoutmaster. Dan got his nickname from his khaki short shorts with too many pockets, his knowledge of knots, and his obsession with being prepared. In over 40 years as an organizer, Dan Raffold had never lost a camper, and, as he was fond of telling us, he planned to keep it that way. We were expected to find our way through each cave at least five times before we even began escorting campers through them, and every guide lived in constant fear that the scoutmaster would suddenly turn up to inspect their gear equipment or quiz them on first aid procedures. As a college boy from the city with no experience, I had expected Dan to be especially hard on me, but he held us all to the same stern standard, no more, no less. The excitement in the air during those first green, cool weeks of summer was infectious. By the time we had mowed the green lawn of the main campground, cleaned the facilities and learned the layout of each cave, I was surprised by how eager I was for the campers to arrive. Unfortunately, I had forgotten what preteens could be like. The body odor, the bullying, the constant boundary pushing. It was tough enough just to get them quiet and moving in the same direction, 
let alone to make them understand the importance of safety underground. There were times when I almost wanted one of them to wander off, just so that they would finally learn their lesson. But then I thought about what it would be like to be alone in the dark so far underground, feeling the cold, damp air on your skin, and knowing that it was just a matter of time until your light ran out. As a new guide, I spent the first three weeks at the back of the group, keeping a head count, and radioing the leader, Miriam, about any issues. Miriam was a lanky, sunburned redhead who'd been working as a guide for five summers now. She had a sheepdog attitude toward the campers. As long as they were all present for each count, she couldn't have cared less about their eye-rolling complaints and snide comments about her height or her freckles. What really mattered to Miriam, the reason she kept coming back, were the caves themselves. The fast-flowing underground streams, the beautiful alien rock formations that could be found nowhere else. The unique wildlife that had never seen the sun. For her, our work was more like a stroll through a beloved park, with the minor inconvenience of herding a group of accident-prone campers. Thanks to her enthusiasm, I also began to enjoy my time spent in the caves, except for one of them. It was just my luck that it was that cave where I was told to lead my first tour. In theory, Silverload Cave was the easiest option for a first-time guide. The other two caves, Pine Knot and Church Falls, each had their own drawbacks. Pine Knot Cave was like a maze, with so many levels and passages that sometimes even experienced guides lost their way. Church Falls Cave was small, but there were a few tight squeezes where one or two campers inevitably discovered their own claustrophobia and needed to be helped through. Silverload Cave, however, featured large and well-explored passages, with few pits or other dangers at least on the main road. Even so, the place gave me a bad feeling. Maybe it was the sheer size of its high-ceilinged galleries. No matter where you directed the beam of your headlamp, there was still a lot of darkness left over. There was also the fact that Silverload was one of the most well-known caves in the area, which meant you might find yourself suddenly face-to-face -face with other cavers or drunk local teenagers. Mariam and I had never had any problems, but still, there was something unsettling about running into strangers in that lightless subterranean world. I think what bothered me most about Silverload Cave was the graffiti. There's usually graffiti in the more popular caves, but the images in Silverload just felt wrong. Worm-like black squiggles, faces not quite animal, not quite human, spray-painted on the stone in lurid colors of lime green and purple. My heart raced whenever I rounded a corner and caught one of them in the beam of my headlamp, sneering at me like it knew some awful secret that I didn't. Then, of course, there was the history of the place. According to Scoutmaster Dan, Native Americans had mined precious metals in Silverload Cave for centuries, until they suddenly and inexplicably stopped over a millennia ago. Later, during the Civil War, Silverload Cave had been a hideout for Confederate guerrilla fighters. Imagining some illiterate farm boy getting his legs sawed off by lantern light while listening to the echo of his own screams was enough to make the cave feel hostile, if not downright menacing. Miriam didn't seem to mind or even notice, but she wasn't leading the campers that day. I was. To make matters worse, it was the group's final cave tour, which meant that we'd be spending the night in the cave. I had done overnights before, but only in Pine Knot or Church Falls, never in Silverload. So far, the worst things to happen were a twisted ankle and a camper who woke up screaming because a cave cricket crawled into his sleeping bag. Between the cool air, the coziness, and the complete darkness, I had actually found caves to be pleasant places to sleep, so far. 
As many times as I had been through Silverload Cave with Miriam, however, I had never spent the night there, and I wasn't looking forward to the prospect. I knew right away that the three boys in the back of my group that day would be trouble. Alex hid Kyle's headlamps in his bulky pockets. Kyle dumped Sean's water on his head during the safety meeting, and Sean tried to push Alex into the creek on the hike to Silverload Cave. The trio talked over us constantly, their preteen voices cracking in the humid summer air. Even Miriam, who almost never lost her cool, wound up shouting. Her words reverberated eerily through the tunnels, so that I could hear her anger, but not what she'd said. In fact, there were times when I wondered whether the voice I was hearing was even Miriam at all. The constant tension grated on my nerves and kept me from paying attention to things that I'm sure I would have noticed otherwise. Things like the shadowy figure that seemed to be following our group. The first time I saw it, I thought it was just another caver, backlit by one of their companion's headlamps. When it appeared again, however, I wasn't so sure. Maybe it was just a shadow that happened to look sort of human, but if it was, then what was casting it? And why did it seem to be moving closer each time? I warned myself to cut it out. There was clearly no one else in the cave with us. We would have heard them, and besides, it was impossible to navigate through the jagged rocks with no illumination. I considered radioing Miriam about it, but I didn't want to risk the campers overhearing and getting scared, or making myself look like an idiot. As it turned out, I didn't have to. We were about 15 minutes from the first break spot, when my walkie-talkie started to go off. At first it was just a rushing sound like wind, or the creek that flowed through the cavern. But then it changed. Gibbering, scratching, a voice whispering my name. Since Miriam's talk button was pressed down, there was no way I could respond to ask her what was going on. I called a halt to the group. Moments later, there was a loud crack, and the noises stopped. We had paused on a low plateau where dripping stalactites hung from the ceiling. It wasn't so low that we had to crawl, but standing up wasn't exactly comfortable either. I was grateful for my knee pads. The twenty campers packed into a circle, swigging Kool-Aid from plastic bottles and wondering what was going on. Mariam scrambled over to me her face a mask of pale anger. I think one of those kids pinched my walkie-talkie. Whoever it was, they must have freaked out when you called a halt and dropped it. I heard something rattle when she shook the plastic device. Well, either way I found it, and it's completely dead. I groaned. It had barely been an hour and already something had gone wrong. Mariam must have seen the look on my face because she gave my shoulder a reassuring squeeze. You're doing fine. Let's just keep the group close enough to see each other, okay? She bit her lip. There was something she wasn't telling me. Hey, have you noticed that? Ouch, let go of my leg. Alex, or maybe Sean or Kyle, suddenly started shouting. There was a small rock slide. I'll handle this, Miriam hissed and disappeared. And for a while, it seemed like she did. Since Miriam and I couldn't contact each other by radio... She turned on the infrared setting on her spare headlamp and hung it around her neck, where it bobbed in the gloom like a glowing red eye. That way, I could be sure that I wasn't getting too far ahead. Except, as we moved through the cave, I could have sworn I saw other dim red lights moving in the darkness, some further back, others closer up. I told myself that it was probably just Miriam's secondary headlamp reflected in dripping water or mineral veins in the walls, but I knew that didn't make any sense. There were too many of them, 
and they were moving with a will of their own. I tried to distract myself by throwing myself wholeheartedly into my explanation of Silverlode Cave's history and geology, but every time I looked up, the danger in the dark felt closer. Two hours later, we'd reached the large chamber that would serve as our campsite. It was a wide, flat area, formed naturally by a curve in the subterranean stream. It was only about 8 p.m., but I knew from experience that getting 20 campers fed and bedded down would take at least two more hours. I kept an eye out for the shadowy figure or the phantom red lights, but there was no sign of anything strange while we all unpacked. When the campers had finished eating and were getting ready for lights out, Mariam approached me. I wanted to ask you earlier, have you noticed another caver around? My blood ran cold. Mariam went on without waiting for a response. It's just strange that someone would be in here this late, someone other than a few loud local teenagers, I mean, and whoever they are, why wouldn't they be using any light? To be honest, I hesitated. I've got a bad feeling about this. Should we, I don't know, call it off? I silently prayed that she'd say yes. Everything about this trip was wrong. Wrong like those eerie graffiti faces spray-painted on the walls. Wrong like the rusted Civil War-era bone saw we'd passed near the entrance. Wrong like the abandoned veins of precious metals that lead downward into the dark. Miriam shook her head. Do you want to explain to Scoutmaster Dan and 20-odd parents why they have to come pick up their kids at 1 a.m. on a weeknight? Because that's what will happen, assuming we get them all out of here on no sleep and with just one working radio. She had a point. Whoever or whatever was out there, it hadn't made any hostile signs toward us so far. Just ignoring it and hoping it would go away wasn't the best option. It reeked of helplessness and desperation, but I couldn't think of anything else to do. The campers muffled laughter and whispered conversation suddenly sounded sinister. As I performed the final bed check, I kept expecting to find one camper's sleeping bag ripped to shreds or squirming as some monstrous, unnameable thing with too many legs came bursting out. Despite my fears, all twenty campers were present and accounted for. After a long day of caving, even Alex, Kyle, and Sean were already fast asleep. Unlike them, I couldn't bring myself to crawl into my sleeping bag or close my eyes. I was too afraid that I'd wake up and find myself being dragged off into the dark. There was no dawn underground, but Miriam and I had our alarm synchronized for 6 a.m. That would give the campers a total of six hours to pack up, eat, trek out of the cave, and get cleaned up before their parents arrived to pick them up. The early wake-up was met with groans and complaints, but we were used to that. The important thing was to get them moving. After a breakfast of granola bars and sports drinks, we rounded everyone up for the morning head count. 18, 19, 20, 21. It was impossible. I thought for sure I had miscounted, but Miriam's count returned the same result. As I scanned the group for an unfamiliar face, I told Miriam to dig the roster out of her rucksack. She returned moments later, angry, confused, and scared. The roster's gone. So are my spare headlamps and the extra food. It's like a bear went through my pack. I checked my own pack and found that it, too, had been ransacked sometime during the night. I shivered. Whatever had done it would have been just inches from my head, and I hadn't even noticed it. Time was of the essence. We couldn't count on our spare lights any longer. Miriam nodded to the assembled group of 21 campers and whispered, Are there any faces you don't recognize? Anyone who stands out? 
It could have been the pale kid standing at the edge of the group with a blank expression on his face, his shirt buttoned up wrong and his boots unlaced. It could have black-haired boy with glasses who'd somehow gotten his arms and legs covered in gray-green cave mud. It could have been the skinny one with a blonde bowl cut who was chomping on his sixth granola bar like a wolf gnawing on a bone. It could have been any of them. In the past weeks, all of those preteen faces had started to blend together. I'd been so distracted by everything that had gone wrong that I was no longer sure exactly who I had come into the cave with. The campers, too, didn't seem to notice that anything was amiss, and some instinct screamed at me to keep it that way. We needed to get out of Silverload Cave and fast. Ironically, Alex, Kyle, and Sean were the only ones I felt sure of, so I put them right behind me in line. I knew they wouldn't like that one bit, but I figured they would do or say something stupid to alert me if some horrible imposter came crawling across the ceiling to slit my throat. The campers were always quiet on their first morning in the cave. Usually it was just the uncanny feeling of waking up in absolute darkness that did it, but there was something more at work this time. Even the densest of them had seen the fear and confusion on my face. They knew that something was off, and they seemed to realize for the first that they were dependent on us to get them out of here. The goofing off that we'd had to deal with on the trek into Silverload Cave had been replaced by nervous jitters and whispering. I took a deep breath, forced myself to turn my back on the campers, and began to lead us out of Silverload Cave. One of the first things that Scoutmaster Dan taught us about caving was the importance of pausing occasionally to note the landmarks behind you. Unlike the terrain above ground, a cave can seem completely different when observed from the opposite direction. Even longtime guides like Miriam sometimes experience the gut-plunging feeling of looking around at the twisting passages and realizing that nothing at all looked familiar. It hadn't happened to me, not until we began our journey back that day. As we left the main chamber behind, we reached the first sink, a bend in the creek where the water disappeared only to reappear further along in the cave. The path should have been to the right, but it wasn't. There was only the creek, disappearing between yet another jagged stone wall. The way to the exit had disappeared. I wanted to believe that I'd just made a mistake, that what I was seeing was just the result of my own slowly building panic, but Miriam had noticed it too. She kept mumbling under her breath, rummaging in her rucksack for the plastic-coated map that had disappeared along with the rest of her gear. As an experienced guide, she was taking the impossible change a lot harder than I was. She knew it was wrong, and I had a nasty feeling that if she stayed in the chamber much longer, she'd shut down completely. Most caves have more than one way in or out, and Silverload was no exception. We normally led the campers via the easiest route, the one that followed the stream, but that was apparently no longer an option. The lower passages tended to flood, and even when the water subsided, it left snarls of dead leaves, wood, and trash. Muck that fed some of the largest insects and spiders that I'd ever seen. I didn't like my odds of getting the campers through that mess, so I opted for the alternative route through the upper galleries. I tried to swallow, but my throat was dry with cave dust. All right, campers, I grimaced. We're going to take a little detour. It was tougher than I remembered. The tunnel grew so narrow that the stone walls scraped against my shoulders, the rough ceiling so low that I occasionally felt the long, alien legs of a cave cricket as it skittered through my hair. 
These upper passages had a nasty slope. While crawling along them, you were constantly sliding down and to the right, toward a jagged black crevasse that, to the best of my knowledge, had never been explored. It wasn't wide enough to fall into, not even for the skinniest of campers, but it was unsettling. I couldn't shake the fear that it might suddenly begin to expand, like a grinning toothless mouth and swallow us whole, or that some unspeakable horror might come slithering out of its lightless depths. I looked back at the campers, their faces flushed with effort, sweaty hair plastered to their foreheads beneath their cheap plastic helmets, and reminded myself that the unspeakable horror was already here among us. But as to what it was or what it wanted, I had no idea. Just an hour left, I reminded myself. In an hour we'd come crawling out into the sunlight, where surely everything would make more sense. It would turn out to be some stupid mistake, like a wrong turn, or a misplaced gear bag, or a miscount on our way out of the cave. Nothing more. It had to be. I'm not sure how I knew something was wrong. Maybe it was the absence of sound. The kids had been chattering like chipmunks for hours, but now they were silent. Maybe it was the smell. Our flashlight beams had revealed that the passage was a crypt, its floor strewn with half-decomposed animal skeletons. Or maybe it was the fact that there was no light. I'd taken my eyes off the campers for just a few seconds, and now I couldn't see any of them. Mariam. I tried to call, but the word wouldn't come out. Instead, I dropped to my knees and crawled forward, my heart pounding. Then I stopped. The infrared light. Back in the main chamber, Mariam had turned on the infrared setting on one of her headlamps so that I could follow her. Her light was the only one with this setting, or at least, it should have been. Yet I could see a second dim red light somewhere in the darkness ahead of me, and another, and another, twenty of them. The same number of campers. They were moving, sliding actually, silently toward the center of the chamber like a pack of ravenous wolves. No longer children. Their bodies had become emaciated and twisted, their bones peeking through thin, bluish skin. One turned to face me, and I caught a glimpse of its face, a grotesque, twisted parody of a human child, with hollow eyes and a gaping, lipless mouth that seemed to stretch unnaturally wide. My instinct was to flee, to crawl back the way I had come, but the thought of leaving Miriam and the campers behind paralyzed me. I needed to do something, but what? Then it hit me. I still had my whistle. I reached for it, but as I brought it to my lips, I hesitated. What if the sound attracted more of those things? I couldn't take that risk. Instead, I used my hand to cover the whistle's opening, muffling the sound as much as possible. I blew as hard as I could, and the shrill sound filled the chamber. The creatures recoiled, covering their ears with their bony hands. Their heads jerked in my direction, their empty eye sockets filled with rage and confusion. I seized the opportunity to scramble back the way I had come, not looking back until I was back in the upper galleries. The creatures hadn't followed me, but I could still hear their guttural, inhuman cries echoing through the cave. I crawled as fast as I could, determined to get back to the campers and Miriam and lead them out of the cave. But when I finally reached the spot where I had left them, they were gone. There was no sign of them anywhere. I called out Miriam's name, but there was no response. Panic set in as I realized I was alone in the dark with those creatures somewhere behind me. I crawled as fast as I could, not caring about the narrow passages or the jagged rocks that scraped against my skin. I just wanted to get out of that cave and away from those things. But no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't find the way out. 
It was as if the cave had shifted and rearranged itself, leading me further into its depths. Hours turned into days, and still, I crawled through the endless passages, my food and water running out. I knew I was lost, and I knew I would never escape the cave. The creatures were always just behind me, their voices echoing through the darkness, and now here I am, still lost in this never-ending nightmare, with no way out. If you're reading this, please, whatever you do, don't go into Silverlode Cave. There are things in there that should never see the light of day, and I fear that I am now one of them. In the summer of 2015, my best friend Scott and I, along with his oldest son David, embarked on our annual fishing trip to Morgan Monroe Reservoir. This tradition had been our escape from the grind of the work week, a cherished ritual we looked forward to every year. I would meet up at Scott's place, where we would load our fishing gear into his trusty old truck, eager to hit the road. At that time, I was only 28 years old, and I'd often tease David about enjoying his youth, warning him about the impending realities of adult life. Scott and I had shared a friendship spanning over a decade, one that resembled a brotherhood more than a mere friendship. We'd also worked together for the same amount of time, cementing our bond and treating each other like family. Our journey to our favorite fishing spot was always filled with excitement, and this year was no different. As we drove, we discussed our plans, with a pit stop for bait being our first order of business. I suggested we needed more bait, which irritated Scott slightly, but he agreed, understanding the desire to start fishing as soon as possible. Our pit stop at a small gas station in Martinsville provided us with worms and other essentials. We loaded up our supplies and continued the journey, listening to some classic rock tunes on the way. All three of us were bubbling with anticipation, eager to cast our lines into the water. As we arrived at our destination, a sign welcomed us, but it bore an ominous message. Closed due to animal attack. The trail leading to the water was shrouded in shadows as the sun began to set. However, we paid little heed to the sign or the encroaching darkness. Both Scott and I were armed and we felt confident in our ability to protect ourselves. We wasted no time setting up our gear by the water's edge, engaging in friendly banter about who would catch the most fish. David was the first to cast his line, boasting that he would outfish us. Scott and I scoffed and quickly followed suit, casting our lines into the water. Hours passed, and the night was filled with laughter and discussions ranging from cars and girls to work-related stories. At one point, David stood up, announcing that he needed to relieve himself. I handed him a flashlight, mindful of the darkness that had settled in. David took the light and disappeared into the woods. Around the same time, we began to hear an eerie knocking sound in the distance. Knock, knock. A shiver ran down my spine, but I initially dismissed it, thinking David was playing a prank. As David returned, Scott reprimanded him for potentially jeopardizing our remote location with pranks. However, David denied making the knocking sounds. Then the knocking noise resumed, louder and more unsettling than before. Knock, knock. I stood up, grabbing David's flashlight, directing it towards the source of the sound. But my beam revealed nothing unusual. Suddenly, something large crashed nearby. I pointed the flashlight in its direction and discovered a massive rock, possibly weighing 10 to 20 pounds or more. Scott began to worry that someone might be messing with us, but David raised the possibility of a bear. Fear had crept into his voice and eyes. 
I, however, knew that bears didn't typically engage in knocking or rock throwing. Concerned, I retrieved my firearm, ready to use it if necessary. For a while, the knocking and rock throwing ceased, and we thought the strange episode had ended. I glanced at my phone and realized it was nearly three o'clock in the morning, though it didn't feel like it. But then, another knock. Knock echoed through the woods, followed by a chilling, inexplicable howl yell. The noise was uncomfortably close, sending shivers down my spine. I asked the others if they were ready to leave, and both Scott and David answered in the affirmative simultaneously. We hurriedly packed our belongings, and just as we were about to make our escape, another rock landed perilously close. It sounded as though something had hurled a massive boulder rather than a mere rock. All three of us froze, scanning our surroundings with our flashlights. Heavy footsteps were drawing nearer, and it seemed like whatever was responsible was in a hurry. Even with our flashlights, visibility was limited. David piped up, wondering if the area's closure was related to these strange occurrences. Scott and I remained silent, pressing forward down the trail that ran parallel to the water's edge. We still had nearly 100 yards to cover before reaching the truck. Then there was a loud kerplunk, followed by a splash just beside us. It sounded as if something had thrown a colossal boulder into the water. Our hearts raced, and adrenaline surged through our veins, pushing us onward. Both Scott and I had our firearms at the ready, prepared to use them if necessary. We continued to hear disturbing noises, including a blood-curdling screech, reminiscent of a creature in agony. I asked Scott if the remote start worked from this distance. He reached for his key fob, but before he could respond, an abhorrent stench engulfed us. It was a putrid amalgamation of decaying trees and wet dog. The odor suggested that whatever was responsible was dangerously close, perhaps within arm's reach. We heard low growls just ahead, along with a loud crash and knocking noises, as if something was slamming trees together. Finally, we reached the truck, its four windows shattered, and we discovered the source of the screeching sounds. A mangled raccoon. The gruesome sight did little to alleviate our panic. We piled into the truck and Scott started the engine. When the truck's lights illuminated the area in front of us, we saw it. A dark, seven-foot-tall creature with reddish-yellow eyes. David pleaded with his dad to go faster, and Scott floored the gas pedal. A deafening bang reverberated through the air, causing the back of the truck to sway. However, we pressed on, our eyes wide and unblinking, the terror palpable. We arrived at Scott's house and stepped out of the truck, examining the damage more closely. The windows were shattered, and a colossal rock now rested in the back. The loud bang had been the Bigfoot throwing the rock at us. Scott looked at me, finally breaking the silence with disbelief in his voice. Is that what I think it was? I replied, I think so. David, still in shock, attempted to explain the situation to his wife, but she dismissed it, assuming he had been drinking and wrecked the truck. I recounted the story to my wife, who merely laughed in disbelief. Despite our harrowing experience, it seemed that no one cared or believed us. As 2023 rolled around, we had not returned to that fishing spot. I often wondered if that Bigfoot had ever encountered anyone else in its remote habitat, and I hoped that they wouldn't meet the same terrifying fate as we had that eerie night in 2015. On a muggy late summer afternoon in the heart of Georgia, 
My husband, our six-year-old son and I found ourselves in search of a camping adventure. Instead of opting for a well-trodden paid camping ground, we yearned for something a little more off the beaten path. Rumors had whispered to us about an old abandoned camping site, a place no longer attended to or maintained. Our curiosity got the better of us, and we decided to check it out. As we pulled up to the entrance, we were greeted by a sight that immediately sent chills down our spines. The gate to the old check-in booth was securely chained shut, a stark symbol of the site's disuse and neglect. This meant we'd have to park our car in the tree-lined wilderness and carry our camping gear on foot. After a short walk through the overgrown foliage, we began to spot remnants of old campsites, picnic tables covered in moss, fire pits choked with weeds, and other signs of abandonment. We pressed on, determined to find a spot near the tranquil pond we'd heard about, and continued our hike until we stumbled upon what seemed like the perfect camping spot. It was about a 15-minute trek from our car, nestled deep within the woods. As evening descended, we set up our campsite with a sense of anticipation and excitement. Our son eventually succumbed to the weariness of the day and fell into a peaceful slumber. My husband and I sat by the crackling campfire, enjoying the solitude. The silence stretched for miles around us, making it a bit overwhelming, but it was precisely when the silence was at its peak that something extraordinary occurred. Out of nowhere we heard it, six loud, heavy, bipedal steps emanating from the water's edge. It was as if someone had emerged from an inner tube in the water and taken several deliberate, ground-shaking strides onto the shore. My initial thought was that a park ranger or police officer had discovered our car, located our campsite, and was making their way towards us to ask us to leave immediately. Yet the sound was unlike anything I had ever heard before. It didn't resemble the cautious steps of an animal like a deer, muskrat, beaver, or even a bear, which shouldn't have been in our region. Instead, it was heavy and deliberate, far more intimidating than any animal could ever be. My husband, a tough guy who wasn't easily rattled, sprang to his feet, feeling defensive and genuinely afraid. At that moment, my blood ran ice cold. We hastily turned on our flashlights, instinctively grabbing a nearby pocket knife and a sturdy stick, prepared for whatever might be approaching. We waited in tense silence for the intruder to reveal themselves. Strangely, no park ranger or officer announced their presence, and no deer darted into view. It was just eerie silence. Then, true terror set in. I couldn't shake the feeling that someone with malicious intent was lurking nearby, waiting for the right moment to strike. I mustered the courage to quiver out a shaky, hello, much like in horror films just before a gruesome attack. But there was no response, just continued silence. Suddenly we heard branches cracking, not on the ground but overhead, all around us. Rapidly and loudly, pine cones fell to the forest floor, echoing the snapping branches. It sounded as if a hundred squirrels had simultaneously gone mad, ascending the trees and sending the forest into chaos. But no matter where we shone our lights, we saw nothing. The cacophony continued relentlessly, as if it had no intention of ceasing. We stood there petrified, unable to do anything except listen and wait for any sign of movement. It was as though we were being toyed with. Sounds came from above, below, in the trees, in the water from every direction. There were no animal sounds, no growls, grunts, or squeaks. The noises and their patterns were not natural, normal, or recognizable. 
I felt utterly cornered. All I wanted was to wake our child, hold him in my arms, abandon our belongings, and sprint back to the car as fast as humanly possible. However, we were a good 15-minute walk from the car, and I could hardly move, let alone run into the dark woods with this unknown presence surrounding us. It all became a blur, but I remember us retreating to the tent, huddling inside with our son, waiting for whatever would happen next. The noises persisted, loudly and without respite. Sometimes they were close, and at other times, they seemed far away. Sometimes they were loud in the water, and then in the trees. What kind of creature or entity could exist both on land and in the water, moving with such incredible speed and making its presence known in so many places simultaneously? It was becoming maddening. But that was the extent of it, terrifying, unexplained sounds. We never slept, waiting for the first rays of daylight to break so we could make our escape. Shortly after sunrise, the noises ceased entirely. Finally, we ventured down to the water's edge, looking for footprints or any other evidence of what could have caused all those bizarre sounds. There, we discovered one puzzling thing, a large tree trunk from a fallen tree that appeared to have been stabbed or shredded with no natural patterns or signs of wildlife. It was as though the tree had been repeatedly stabbed and gouged with a very large knife, leaving deep gashes and splinters. These cuts were fresh, and they definitely hadn't been there the previous day. In the stark light of day, we left that eerie place without any idea of what had caused those bizarre sounds in the woods. Perhaps there was a reason why they had closed down that campground. Even years later, it still baffles me. I've been unable to rationalize or explain it away. It was something very, I'll just say, unnatural. I've spent most of my life in East Tennessee, surrounded by the tales of old wives and urban legends about the eerie creatures that roamed the dense forest. As a child, I dismissed these stories as mere attempts to scare us away from venturing into the wilderness, believing they were concocted to keep us safe from ravines and getting lost in the vast wilderness. However, the tales lingered in my mind, and as I grew older, my curiosity got the better of me. I started to delve into these stories in my spare time, drawn to the enigmatic creatures said to inhabit these woods. While the locals were fixated on the legend of Bigfoot, I found myself intrigued by the Dogman, although I kept this fascination unofficial. After high school, my sole ambition was to become a park ranger, a job that would allow me to immerse myself in the beauty of nature, even when it was at its most perilous. There are countless stories I could recount but one that haunts me to this day involves a group of hikers from a couple of years ago. It was early October, a time I typically made my annual pilgrimage to Klingerman's Dome. The view from the top, with trees ablaze in a kaleidoscope of autumnal colors, always reaffirmed my career choice as a park ranger. On that particular day, I was on patrol when a distress call came in, directing me to the cabins near Fontana Lake. A woman met me there, her eyes filled with worry. She explained that her husband, son, and brother-in-law had gone fishing at the lake and had not returned. I gathered the necessary information about their descriptions, names, and the details of their truck and boat before setting out to search for them. She mentioned they were heading up to Wolf Creek. I informed the station and then proceeded to drive down to Flat Branch, suspecting they might have ventured into the river there. The journey was lengthy, but getting anywhere deep in the backwoods of the Smoky Mountains always was. 
Upon arrival, I spotted three trucks parked on the side of the road, two of them with empty boat trailers. One of the trucks matched the description given by the wife, giving me a starting point for my search. I approached the water's edge and scanned in both directions, hoping to spot them returning from their fishing expedition. But my hopes went unanswered, and there was no sign of them. Nearby I found a house and decided to ask the occupants if they had seen the missing trio. The man there mentioned he had been fishing himself the previous day and recalled seeing a boat resembling the one I described, with two men and a boy aboard heading west. I inquired if he had a boat to transport me to Wolf Creek, to which he hesitantly agreed, his demeanor shifting from friendly to wary. He consented to ferry me across the river but refused to take me all the way to Wolf Creek. I accepted his offer and, after a quick dash back to my truck for my backpack, he transported me across the river and promptly departed. It was approximately a mile to the remote campsite I believe they had used. I began walking along the river's edge, keeping a vigilant eye out for any signs of them. It wasn't long before I spotted a boat resting on the shore, appearing to match the description. Approaching the boat cautiously, I hoped to find the missing party calmly sitting by a campfire, ready to head home. But my optimism quickly waned when I reached their campsite. There were only two tents, both of them ravaged as if some force had torn into them. I ventured inside each tent, discovering scattered sleeping bags and camping equipment strewn about, trying my best not to disturb the scene. However, it was the second tent that revealed a more disturbing truth. Inside the disheveled tent, I noticed conspicuous droplets of red. Nearby lay a notebook, and I gingerly picked it up to peruse its pages. October 3rd. We set out for our annual fishing trip this morning, much to Mom's chagrin, but we reassured her that we'd be back the following day. The drive to the boat launch was long, filled with our anticipation of the bountiful fish we'd catch and stories of the region. Dad tried to spook me with tales of a cryptid living in the area, but I dismissed it as a jest. We reached the boat launch and embarked on the water without much trouble, except for Uncle Roger's near tumble while trying to release the boat. He didn't find it nearly as amusing as Dad and I did. As we ventured further into the lake and cast our lines, Uncle Roger seemed to relax, especially after a few beers. Laughter echoed from our boat as we enjoyed ourselves. Although we caught a couple of small fish that required release, we finally hit the jackpot when we reached Wolf Creek. Uncle Roger managed to catch three largemouth bass, and I caught two. Dad had a colossal one on his line, but it eluded our grasp. With dusk approaching, Dad suggested we head to one of the secluded campsites. We moored the boat by the shore, securing it to a massive tree. We unpacked our gear, pitched our tents, and Dad lit a campfire while Uncle Roger cleaned the fish. We relished our meal and exchanged stories late into the night. Dad mentioned a promising fishing spot further west, planning to visit it early the next morning before we returned to our cabin. The middle of the night. I awoke to a strange commotion outside the tent. Dad was absent, and I could hear rustling and what seemed like something pawing the ground and snorting. I surmised it was Dad playing a prank, trying to frighten me. I had dismissed their attempts to scare me with cryptid tales earlier, confident I wouldn't be deceived again. I resisted the urge to turn on the light or investigate, knowing my father and uncle would probably run away, pretending to be the very creature they had warned me about. I anticipated that, come morning, 
They would discuss the eerie sounds they claimed to have heard to perpetuate their prank. Instead, I rolled over and attempted to return to sleep, but Dad's antics continued relentlessly. He stomped around and growled, attempting to gain my attention, but I remained steadfast in my determination not to be fooled. When morning arrived, I ventured outside the tent, expecting to find the campsite intact, and my father and uncle with cheerful expressions, ready to break their prank. To my astonishment, the campsite lay in ruins. Uncle Roger asked if I had heard any noises during the night, and I feigned compliance, claiming I had heard something like a creature outside our tent but was too fearful to investigate. He pretended to search for Dad, displaying genuine concern. I remained patient, expecting my father to end the charade, but as the morning progressed, my anxiety grew. Dad was nowhere to be found, and Uncle Roger eventually suggested we begin searching for him. By noon, we decided to set out in search of Dad, with Uncle Roger acting as though Dad had simply gotten lost in the wilderness. I wanted to reveal that I hadn't fallen for their ruse, but I couldn't bring myself to spoil their fun. Uncle Roger was deeply troubled, yet he concealed his emotions, asserting that Dad was likely already back at the campsite. As the sun dipped lower in the sky, we abandoned our search and returned to the camp. Twice we lost our way, and each time we retraced our steps to reach the campsite. The region had few established trails, and it was evident that people had not explored these parts extensively. Upon our return to the campsite, I rushed to our tent in the hope of finding my father there. However, my search yielded no results. We hastily consumed our meager supper and retired for the night, with Uncle Roger vowing to wake me when Dad returned. October 4th. Uncle Roger never woke me. Dad did not return. I suggested we seek help, but Uncle Roger revealed that Dad was the only one with a phone. We debated our next course of action when we suddenly heard rustling in the woods, and the birds fell silent. We scanned our surroundings and discovered the source of the disturbance. A creature was approaching us. It stood tall on its hind legs, producing loud, bone-cracking sounds as it moved. This monstrous being was massive and I was paralyzed with fear. Uncle Roger urgently pulled me behind the tent, and we tried to conceal ourselves. However, the creature spotted us and unleashed a deafening roar. We were mere feet away, and I could see blood on its claws and teeth, sending shivers down my spine. What? What should we do? I whispered. Uncle Roger raised a finger to his lips, and the creature turned its attention to our tent, as though searching for something. Come on, Uncle Roger whispered. We silently slipped away from the monster. We descended the creek's bank and walked downstream, concealed by the water. We hoped the rushing water would muffle any sounds and help us evade our pursuer. Time dragged on as we made our way downstream, our nerves on edge. We reached a bridge, a small wooden structure that spanned the creek. Our options were limited, and we sought refuge under the bridge, praying that the creature would lose our scent and leave. We huddled together in the shadows, the daylight fading into dusk, and the temperature dropping rapidly. Without our jackets, we shivered, with the cold air contrasting with the adrenaline coursing through our veins. As I began to doze off, Uncle Roger nudged me. I looked up, and he motioned for me to remain silent. I was about to ask why when I heard a creaking sound on the bridge directly above us. It was not the steady rhythm of a hiker passing by, but a slow, deliberate progression, as if someone, or something, were stalking us. I listened intently as each board groaned under the weight of whatever was creeping above. 
My teeth chattered in fear, and I bit my tongue to stifle the noise. The creature seemed to pause, as though it had heard something, its movements tentative as it assessed the situation. We strained our ears, and I heard sniffs, a creature trying to detect our scent. For the first time I noticed a slight breeze, and it occurred to me that it might carry our scent downstream or upstream. Another slow footstep sounded, causing the board to creak, and for a brief moment it appeared the creature was moving away from us, heading to the far end of the bridge. Hope surged within me, but it was short-lived. The creature abruptly stopped, and with a quick jerking motion, dipped its head under the bridge and peered into our hiding spot. We remained frozen, our hearts racing, as the monstrous creature on its hind legs, resembling a nightmarish dog, scrutinized the area beneath the bridge. Darkness enveloped us, offering precious little cover. The creature's gaze shifted toward us, and our hearts pounded in our chests. Daylight had dwindled to dusk, and our hideout provided some shadows that rendered us nearly invisible. However, our safety was short-lived as the creature approached. My mind locked in terror, unsure of what course to take. Running would likely expose our location, and it appeared our only option was to face a horrific demise. At that moment, I felt Uncle Roger lean closer. He was right in front of me and I saw him pick up a stone the size of his fist. I realized he intended to shield me, offering himself as a sacrifice to protect me. Tears streamed down my face at the thought of my father falling victim to this monstrous creature. As I braced myself for the inevitable, I saw the creature's terrible claws inch closer to Uncle Roger's face. It was a defining moment. Suddenly the creature halted, raising its head to sniff the air. The hair on its back bristled, and then in an instant it vanished. Uncle Roger cautiously stood and I tried to do the same, though my legs felt weak. I unintentionally dislodged some stones, creating a minor noise that prompted Uncle Roger to hiss at me. We stood in silence, waiting for the creature to spring from its hiding place at any moment. After several agonizing minutes, we dared to move away cautiously. We descended the creek's bank and walked downstream through the water. Where are we going? I whispered. There's a bridge downstream, Uncle Roger whispered back. If we're quiet enough and the creature loses our scent, we can hide under it and hope it goes away. I focused on walking as silently as possible in the rushing water, its noise masking our movements. It felt like an eternity before we reached the bridge, a small wooden structure spanning the creek, providing hikers with passage over it. There was little cover. We sought the deepest shadows at the far end of the bridge, our hearts pounding. Time seemed to slow as I sat on the uncomfortable rocks, trembling. Neither of us had our jackets, and the temperature had plummeted as the sun disappeared. I was nearly dozing off when Uncle Roger nudged me. I looked up and he motioned for me to remain silent. I was about to ask why when I heard a creaking sound, someone or something was slowly approaching on the bridge above us. It wasn't the steady gait of a hiker on the trail, it was a cautious, deliberate step as though the entity were stalking us. I listened intently as each board groaned under the weight of whatever was inching closer, one slow, deliberate step at a time. My teeth chattered with fear as I fought to keep quiet. It couldn't have been very loud, and Uncle Roger barely heard it, but he motioned for me to stop. I bit my tongue, trying to suppress any noise and continued to listen. There was nothing to hear. The creature above us had halted its advance as if it were listening to ascertain whether it had detected something. 
I strained my ears, desperate for any sign of movement. Then I heard sniffling. It was the creature, attempting to pick up our scent. For the first time, I realized a slight breeze blowing, aligned with the water's flow. However, I had no way of determining which side of the bridge the creature was on, and the wind could either save or doom us. Another deliberate footstep sounded like an explosion as the board groaned beneath the weight. For a brief moment, it seemed like the creature was moving away toward the far end of the bridge. Hope flickered within me as another step followed, and then another. I silently sighed with relief as I heard it step off the bridge and onto the trail. However, my relief was short-lived as I saw a face peer around the corner, gazing under the bridge. It was the creature, a monstrous dog-like being, standing on its hind legs, its presence a grotesque nightmare. Daylight had faded to dusk, and there was minimal illumination. Our only advantage lay in the shadows, making us nearly invisible. Yet the creature approached steadily, and I feared our safety was slipping away. My mind raced with thoughts and I felt paralyzed. Running would only reveal our presence more quickly, and it seemed we had no choice but to face a dreadful end. In that moment, I was certain of what had befallen my father. Tears streamed down my face as I imagined him torn apart by this monstrous entity. As I braced myself for the end, I felt Uncle Roger lean closer. He was right in front of me, and I watched as he picked up a stone, roughly the size of his fist. I understood his intention, to protect me at the cost of his own life. Tears flowed more intensely, obscuring my vision. The creature's claws drew closer to Uncle Roger's face again. This was it. Then abruptly it stopped. It lifted its head and sniffed the air, its back bristling. In an instant it vanished again. It was like we were in a terrifying loop. Uncle Roger and I slowly stood and I tried to follow suit, although my legs felt unsteady. We remained still, listening for any signs of the creature emerging from its hiding place. After several agonizing minutes, Uncle Roger led the way back to our camp. We believed that changing into dry clothes and resting were our best options. The warmth of the campfire and the dry clothes offered a welcome respite from the cold and dampness. I nestled into my sleeping bag and wrote this message, hoping that someone would find it if we didn't survive. I prayed that my father had been as fortunate as we were. I read through the entire message, my heart heavy with concern for the boy, his uncle, and the fate of the father. If my suspicions were correct, the situation was dire. Despite the impending danger, I felt compelled to search for them. I began with a meticulous examination of the tracks around the camp, specifically those near the tents. It seemed that the boy and his uncle had initially headed toward the creek, and the creature's tracks followed suit. I followed the erratic tracks, occasionally losing them, but eventually picking up drops of blood that confirmed their direction. The tracks ran along the creek, and I noticed that the boy and his uncle must have returned to the campsite after initially leaving. However, there were no signs that the father had come back with them. As I circled the campsite, I made a disturbing discovery. An adult's tracks led from one of the tents to the edge of the woods and stopped abruptly. There was a dark stain on the tree bark a few feet up, likely from a late-night bathroom break. However, the tracks never returned, as though the person had vanished. I searched the area thoroughly, but found no indication of the father's whereabouts. Finally, I realized there were specks of blood higher up on the tree bark. I expanded my search and found tracks of the creature, accompanied by drops of blood. My heart sank at the implication. I followed the trail of the creature, 
hoping against hope that my instincts were wrong. However, each step deepened my dread. I attempted to radio the station to report the situation, but inexplicably, all I received was static. Frustration and urgency gripped me as I realized that communication had been compromised. I adjusted my backpack, ensuring my sidearm was loaded, and ventured deeper into the cave. The deafening sound of the rain outside gave way to an eerie silence within the cavern. Each step I took echoed in the vast darkness. As I crept deeper, I felt a sense of foreboding that intensified with each passing moment. Two thoughts weighed heavily on my mind. Firing my gun in this confined space would likely deafen me, and the putrid stench that pervaded the cave was nauseating. My flashlight pierced the darkness, revealing the cave's expanse, a rough, uneven floor scattered with boulders and stones. The walls were rugged, devoid of any ancient cave drawings. The silence was oppressive, broken only by the sound of my footsteps, my breathing, and my racing heartbeat. The tension was unbearable, and I pressed forward with trepidation, every step feeling like a descent into a nightmarish abyss. Doubts filled my mind, and I contemplated retreating, but a nagging sense of responsibility compelled me to continue. As I ventured deeper into the cave, the rain's distant roar outside diminished, replaced by an eerie stillness. I could hear my own footsteps, my rapid breathing, and the pounding of my heart echoing through the cavern. Just as I contemplated retreating, a movement ahead caught my eye. It was substantial, as large as a person. Panic surged within me, and I instinctively pressed myself against the cave wall, forgetting momentarily that my flashlight remained on, betraying my position. I heard a shuffling sound growing closer, and I frantically pointed my flashlight in the creature's direction, my heart pounding in my chest. I knew that I needed to gather more information, but I couldn't afford to be taken by surprise. I withdrew my sidearm, clutching it tightly as I cautiously advanced, my light illuminating the cave's interior. And then, I saw it. The creature, a nightmarish amalgamation of a dog-like form, elongated and standing on its hind legs. It loomed only a few steps away, its grotesque appearance etched into my memory. Fear surged through me, but I couldn't afford to hesitate. My only option was to confront the abomination that stood before me, standing between life and death in the darkest depths of the cave. The creature, a nightmarish and wounded beast, recoiled from the blinding light of my flashlight and emitted a guttural growl that sent shivers down my spine. Panic surged within me, and I fought to control my trembling body, fearing I might lose control of my bodily functions in sheer terror. Instinctively, I raised my gun and pulled the trigger, unleashing a deafening blast that left my ears ringing. The creature roared in response, its proximity to me making the sound almost inaudible over the ringing in my ears, and it darted deeper into the cave, its malevolent intent palpable. As the echoes of the gunshot faded, I stumbled, struggling to regain my balance and composure. My desperate need to find the missing hiker compelled me to press on, despite the overwhelming dread that coursed through me. I scanned the cave floor, searching for any sign of blood or injury, but there was none to be found. It seemed that my shot had merely startled the creature. The realization that it was still at full strength filled me with dread, for I knew that it would perceive me as an invader in its domain. With my flashlight cutting through the darkness, I ventured deeper into the cave, my senses on high alert, watching for any sudden movement. I had no clue where the creature had disappeared to, nor whether it was preparing an ambush. A sudden gust of air brushed against my skin and I reacted on pure instinct, 
leaping backward just in time to evade the deadly swipe of claws through the air. My heart raced as I rolled and fired my gun blindly, the flashlight casting a feeble glow on my target. I squeezed the trigger repeatedly, desperate to hit the creature, but it dodged every shot, retreating with unnatural speed until it vanished from sight, leaving me to hope that at least one of my shots had connected. I ejected the spent magazine from my gun, replacing it with a fresh one, all the while chastising myself for not conserving my limited ammunition. In my mind, I reasoned that there was no use in dying with a full magazine. Following the trail of blood drops left by the wounded creature, I proceeded deeper into the cave. A pervasive chill permeated the air, making me shudder as I pressed forward, a sense of impending doom weighing on my mind. It felt like a tomb, my tomb, but I shook off such thoughts and continued my pursuit until the blood trail came to an abrupt end. I illuminated a small puddle with my flashlight, scrutinizing the ground for any clues. The absence of blood beyond that point filled me with unease, as if I had walked into a trap. I scanned every inch of the cave, from floor to ceiling, but the creature remained elusive. My instincts screamed that it was a trap. With my heart pounding, I started backing out of the cave, my eyes darting around, scanning for any sign of my relentless pursuer. Then it struck me like a speeding bulldozer, a sudden brutal impact to my back that sent me sprawling. My flashlight landed several feet away, and I had no idea where my gun had ended up. Gasping for breath, I struggled to move, but my body refused to cooperate. The creature circled around me, growling and bristling, a palpable menace. I knew it was closing in for the kill. Panic gripped me as I willed my body to move. I watched as my arm slowly reached out towards the distant flashlight. Just as I grasped it, I saw the creature crouch, ready to lunge. I clicked the flashlight to strobe mode, directing its blinding beam at the creature's face. It screamed and swiped at the light, as if trying to fend it off. Summoning every ounce of strength, I rose to my knees, keeping the light trained on the creature. When it turned away, I frantically scanned for my gun. It lay a few yards away, and I attempted to crawl toward it, ignoring the pain from my freshly broken nose. Aware that my life hung in the balance, I couldn't afford to feel the pain. I reached for the gun, and just as the creature charged at me with renewed aggression, I aimed and fired. The impact sent the creature tumbling, but it remained on its feet, growling defiantly. My magazine emptied. I fumbled to reload, berating myself for not being more cautious with my limited ammunition. I justified it with the thought that there was no point in preserving bullets if I didn't survive. I resumed my pursuit, exhilarated by a trail of fresh blood drops that indicated I had wounded the creature. Though the drops were infrequent, I knew that at the speed it was moving, it must have suffered a severe injury. As I continued into the depths of the cave, an eerie chill gnawed at my resolve. It felt like a tomb, and the thought of it being my own tomb gnawed at my mind. But I pushed through, following the blood trail until it vanished. My flashlight revealed a small puddle, the final traces of blood and the absence of any more tracks filled me with dread. I knew it was a trap. My instincts screamed at me. In a desperate retreat, I backed out of the cave, my eyes darting in all directions. Then out of nowhere it struck with the force of a freight train, ramming into my back. I sprawled on the floor, my flashlight a few feet away. Gasping for air, I lay defenseless as the creature circled me, its growls growing more menacing. I could feel its intent to kill, my mind screamed at me to move, but my body refused to cooperate. The creature's breath, visible in the dim light, signaled that my time was running out. 
With a Herculean effort, my arm was the first to regain mobility. Slowly, I reached for the flashlight. The creature paused just as I got a grip on it. I directed the strobe at its face again, and it howled, clawing at the blinding light. Summoning all my strength, I rose to my knees, keeping the light trained on the creature. When it turned away, I frantically searched for my gun, which I found a few yards away. I attempted to run for it, but my body's full recovery remained elusive, and I fell flat on my face. Ignoring the pain of my broken nose once more, I crawled toward the gun with every ounce of energy within me. It seemed like an eternity until I grasped the grip and aimed it at the creature, which was charging at me full speed. I squeezed the trigger at the perfect moment, sending it crashing down with a horrific scream. It writhed and clawed at its face, blood pouring from its numerous wounds, but even in agony, it refused to surrender. Minutes passed, and it finally ceased its frenzied movements, becoming eerily still. My flashlight revealed that I had struck its eye, leaving nothing but a bloody hole. I dared not approach it, standing at a safe distance, gun at the ready in case it made a final move. Its squeals devolved into moans, and then a heavy sigh before it lay still. With caution, I directed the flashlight toward the creature, cautiously optimistic that the threat had ended. Remembering my original purpose, I tried to regain my bearings and ventured further into the cave. My primary thoughts were finding the missing hikers alive and hoping there weren't more of these creatures lurking in the shadows, for I knew I couldn't endure another confrontation like the one I had just faced. I retraced my steps through the cave, passing the blood-stained battleground where I had faced the creature. Shell casings and blood were scattered on the cave floor, serving as grim reminders of our encounter. I wondered how I had avoided getting hit by a stray bullet, and I looked to the spot where the creature had fallen, but to my bewilderment, it was gone. I scanned the area, frantically searching for any sign of its presence, but it had vanished without a trace. Fear coursed through me as I checked my gun, realizing I had only two rounds remaining. The creature's absence was unnerving. It could be lurking anywhere, biding its time for a final strike. Despite the unsettling turn of events, I knew there was nothing more I could do. I was defenseless, carrying a corpse on my back. I holstered my gun and continued, leaving the creature's whereabouts a terrifying mystery. As I neared the cave's exit, the world outside had transformed. Daylight struggled to penetrate the thick fog that now blanketed the valley. The mist obscured everything below except for the distant peaks of the mountains, which remained untouched by the suffocating haze. I glanced over at my backpack, left waiting patiently for my return, and retrieved my water bottle. I took a moment to savor the last sip, knowing I would need every ounce of energy to complete my grim journey. Sitting on the precipice of the cave, I looked down at the valley below, pondering how to descend with my burden without risking both our lives. For a fleeting moment, the temptation to toss the hiker's body down crossed my mind, but I quickly dismissed it as an undignified option. Rummaging through my backpack, I found a set of bungee cords and used them to secure the body to my back, forming a macabre backpack. It wasn't an ideal solution, but it was the best I could manage under the circumstances. With the gruesome load secured, I began the treacherous descent, my heart pounding with each precarious step. There were moments when I lost my footing and nearly tumbled to my death, but my determination to honor my mission and the hiker's memory spurred me on. Finally, I reached the bottom unscathed, 
But a new challenge loomed ahead. The thick fog obscured my surroundings, and I had no clear path to follow. I decided to move straight ahead, hoping that the fog would lift as I ventured further. The rain had transformed the forest into a soggy marshland with the soft ground and swollen streams posing additional obstacles. At times I waded through knee-deep water, the cold seeping through my clothes and draining my energy. With each step, my thoughts oscillated between the missing hiker and the relentless creature that had pursued me. I hadn't discovered any other remains in the cave, suggesting that the creature hadn't had the opportunity to bring its other victims there. My relentless pursuit had forced it to retreat prematurely. Throughout the journey, I kept my ears attuned for any signs of the creature following me, but the eerie silence of the forest raised concerns. Wildlife often fell silent in the presence of a predator, and I couldn't shake the feeling that danger still lurked nearby. Nevertheless, I couldn't afford to dwell on my fears. My sole focus was to make it back to the safety of my truck, my primary goal to honor the hiker's memory and provide his family with closure. Exhaustion gnawed at my every step, and two thoughts persisted in my mind. The whereabouts of the other hikers and the relentless pursuit of the creature. The cave had revealed no other remains, suggesting that they might still be alive. If that were the case, they were counting on me to find them. My journey seemed endless, and I pushed forward with the determination born of desperation. The relentless pursuit by the wounded creature loomed over me like a dark cloud, my constant companion in this eerie silence. After what felt like an eternity, I reached a turning point, a fleeting glimmer of hope on the horizon. I heard the faint sound of running water, the soothing flow of a creek. Hope surged within me, momentarily eclipsing the fear that had gripped me for so long. But hope was short-lived, for I heard a solitary footstep behind me, and I whirled around, my macabre burden nearly unbalancing me. The thick fog obscured my view, and I strained to see through the mist, my heart pounding. My senses sharpened, and I knew I was being pursued. My pursuer was relentless, determined, and a harbinger of death. The boy had given voice to my darkest fears, and I knew I couldn't afford to slow down or become an easy target. With renewed determination, I set my course toward the sound of the creek, my every step guided by the instinct for survival. The marshy terrain slowed my progress, and the cold water sapped my strength, but the specter of the pursuing creature pushed me forward. As I reached the banks of Wolf Creek, I knew my strength was waning. The creature had entered the water behind me and was steadily gaining ground. The creek grew deeper, forcing me to swim, the frigid water sapping my energy further. My relentless pursuer was a mere few yards behind me, and I knew my chances of survival were slim. It was impossible to see whether the creature could swim, but I couldn't afford to turn and find out. With every ounce of energy, I swam to the far side of the lake, praying for salvation. I reached the shore, utterly exhausted and chilled to the bone, and lay there, expecting the creature to descend upon me at any moment. To my astonishment, I looked back and saw the creature standing on the far shore, unable or unwilling to cross the water. It was grotesque, its single eye socket oozing gore, internal organs visible through its many wounds, and its right leg wounded, causing a severe limp. The rage burning in its remaining eye was unmistakable, but it seemed unable to pursue me further. A wry smile played across my lips as I lay there, catching my breath. It appeared that the creature couldn't swim, and for the moment I had eluded its clutches. As I slowly rose and continued my journey back to the truck, 
I couldn't help but feel a sense of relief mixed with exhaustion. I had survived the relentless pursuit, but I knew my battle with the creature was far from over. Upon reaching my truck, I opened the door and knocked gently on the cabin door. When the woman inside saw me, her expression shifted from fear to relief. Are you all right? She asked in a trembling voice. I hung my head wearily. No, but I will be after some much needed rest. I have unfortunate news. I found your husband, but your son and brother-in-law are still missing. A man and a young boy emerged from the cabin, their eyes filled with curiosity and apprehension. The man looked at me quizzically. Who are you? He asked. She's the ranger who came looking for all three of you, the woman explained. I don't understand, I replied, my fatigue evident. Your tracks were confusing. I followed them to the bridge, but they doubled back to the campsite. The boy chimed in, explaining how they had rested and then slipped away to a boat, rowing across the river to escape. I couldn't help but smile at their resourcefulness, relieved that they had survived. I'm very glad you did, I said sincerely, pulling them both into a grateful hug. As the boy's eyes welled up with tears, he asked, You said you found my dad? My face grew somber as I nodded. I did, but it was too late. So he's... The boy began. I nodded again, my heart heavy. Where is he? He asked, his voice trembling. He's in my truck, but you don't want to see him like that. Before I could utter another word, he sprinted to the truck and peered inside, finding the passenger seat empty. He turned to the bed of the truck, and upon seeing his father's lifeless form, broke into sobs, sliding down the side of the vehicle. I'm so sorry, I murmured, turning to the grieving family. The woman embraced me tightly, expressing her gratitude. Don't be, she said. Without you, we might have lived in false hope for weeks, months, or even years. You've given us a chance for closure and the opportunity to properly grieve. Tears welled in my eyes as I gently placed the hiker's body on their couch, covering him with a blanket. The boy, still overwhelmed by grief, sat in a nearby chair, his gaze fixed on the covered form. Knowing I had done all I could, I excused myself and left the cabin, my mind heavy with the weight of the day's events. I had fulfilled my duty, but I couldn't shake the feeling of impending danger from the relentless creature. As I drove back home, I called the ranger station and reported the harrowing ordeal in detail, informing them that I would be taking the following day off. After a long shower and collapsing into bed, I had only one thought on my mind, a return to Wolf Creek armed with more firepower, to put an end to the creature that had haunted my nightmares. But that, as they say, is another story.